You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete, where we look back at our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. From champagne football to shambolic debacles, each week we'll take a nostalgic view of some of the most memorable squads from the annals of our footballing fandom. It'll be light-hearted, fairly shaky on the facts, but who cares? Relive your youth and go with Four at the Back. <laughs> Welcome back to Four at the Back. Uh, this week we're talking about Chelsea and their first season under Jose Mourinho in 2004-2005. Just to set the scene a little bit, uh, this is the season after Arsenal's invincible season. So at, the, at this point, Arsenal is still unbeaten and would go into a, a chunk of this season with that sort of record. So that's sort of the big... Uh, the, the big story going into this season. Um, but at Stamford Bridge, uh, the season before, they had that huge takeover by the Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, and Claudio Ranieri had led them to second place, whereupon he was unceremoniously chucked into obscurity and replaced by Jose Mourinho, who had had a, a, a successful couple of years at Porto so what are our memories of that sort of that sort of uh, dethroning of Ranieri and the uh, and his sort of replacement with Mourinho I think the the thing that really stands out to me was that Mourinho announcing himself uh, on the world stage I think it was a it was the I think it's a quarter final against United and the Champions League and um I was only sort of half paying attention to the game because I was sort of, you know, around my, my girlfriend at the time's house and um, and I sort of had half an eye on the TV and, and I just suddenly saw they'd scored and I saw Mourinho sprinting down the touchline and Ferguson looking on, stony-faced. And um, and I thought, well, this guy's a bit of a, a bit of a character. And then, of course, they that bizarro Champions League year when, you know, a lot of the underdogs made it uh, into the semi-finals and um, you know of course Porto then won that Champions League final and I think it was inevitable a big English team was going to take him from that moment really and you know Chelsea was the one that had the kind of you know the money and and the sort of the the dream to sell um, and he just seemed to fit the place in a way that Ranieri never had I mean Chelsea fans never really took to Ranieri the whole Tinkerman thing and it does seem harsh in retrospect, the sort of binning him off after him leading them second. But, you know, he'd been there for a couple of years before that and they'd kind of been floating around that kind of fifth, sixth sort of area. You know, Viali and Hullet had never really managed to to get them competing right at the top of the league either. You know, it'd been a lot of money, not just Abramovich's money in 2003, but also, you know, Matthew Harding's money before that. And, and they'd just never really, apart from a couple of cups, never really kind of translated that into sustained success. And I think it's a bit of a a lesson, really, that, that throwing money at something isn't always enough. You do need that man that's going to finally put it all together. And, and they found that with Mourinho. You know, that you can almost see Mourinho's season here as the, as the start point, but also the culmination of all of that spending and all of that sort of 
effort that had gone into making Chelsea a super club. Because, you know, let's not forget, you know, that United team we talked about two weeks ago thumped them 4-0 in a FA Cup final, um, you know, in 1994. And, and that Chelsea team couldn't be further away from the sort of glamorous names that had start picking up a couple of years later. So, you know, it's interesting they finally get over the hump here. And, you know, I, I, you know it's another sliding doors thing. If Mourinho doesn't come here, how long is it until Chelsea win a title? Do Chelsea win a title? Because, you know, all the momentum where they go on and win a few from here with not just Mourinho, but Ancelotti as well. Um, yeah, it kind of all starts here. It's worth remembering that it made them the villains of the piece. Um, it, obviously, we know how Mourinho is going to work out and he proved everybody that was a doubter wrong in the end. But there was a lot of goodwill towards Ranieri coming out of that 2004 season because they had come set and they'd beaten Arsenal in the Champions League, if I remember right. Um, so there was this sense, if anything, that he was maybe taking them in the right direction and it was cut off a little bit unfairly. Uh, and Mourinho was not necessarily a likeable person in that first instant. There were a lot of people unconvinced in the uh, in the media in particular. And part of the reason that they were not exactly the good guys was because the team that had just won the league was, was Arsenal. Uh, they'd just gone unbeaten. Henri had people gushing about his performances in that 2003-04 season. Chelsea didn't start the season playing uh, the same kind of brand of football that Arsenal were perceived as playing. And so you add it all together and what you had uh, in a way that's not unlike the 1994 Man United team we talked about a few weeks ago is you had a great villain uh, emerging in English football. And they'd stay that way really for the next two seasons uh, as they were pretty much insurmountable. Well, yeah, and it's the money thing. No, no one, no one likes that big cash injection unless you support the team, you know. And until Man City came along and did it, took it to a next level, you know, it was there. It was the same with Blackburn, and you know, no, <laughs> when you think about what old Jack Walker must have spent, you know, it probably wouldn't cover someone's wages for a couple of weeks at this point. But you know, it's. Uh, it, it's never received well, aside from the uh, aside from the team that are actually benefiting from it in English football. Now, yeah, that's going to carry on. It's always going to be that way. If you get a rich benefactor and you suddenly go from pretty much nowhere to winning the league, you're always going to have people look at you like that. I will, I will say, just is that it's never been quite as badly received as that pairing of Abramovich and Mourinho. The Jack Walker, Blackburn team, yes, they had their detractors. Man City have their detractors now. But there was some vitriol in the first instance about the brashness of Mourinho paired with the the scale of the Abramovich spending on, on a way that we'd never seen before. And I think once you've seen it once, maybe that takes some of the sting out. And that's why Man City it wasn't quite the same. So although there's the same broad strokes thing, I mean, this was something new, I thought, at the time. It certainly felt that way. And it, it, it feels like we're entering a new phase in the Premier League as well in this season as a result of all that. I mean, and yeah, yeah. Sorry, Matt. I mean, I was sort of, but yeah, you take the other side of it, though. And there was such a monopoly on the title between Arsenal and United. And actually, it was it, as much as sort of Chelsea have become, you know, sort of a, a tedious part of that landscape over the next decade. There was something very fresh about about somebody else winning it, honestly. Mm. And I've always felt that way. I felt the same about City. 
because English football has, 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 has sort of um, really been dominated by, you know, by those two teams that play in red for, for you know, for kind of most of my lifetime. And I think um, those those two teams in blue with the money and, and, and sort of getting that, um, putting the nose of the two sort of, you know, more traditional clubs in uh, yeah, out of joint, I, th- I think has been has been refreshing in its own way. And the thing about Mourinho was, you know, as much as some people in the press were like, who is this guy? Also, he was box office. And that's the thing about Mourinho. And he retains that to this day because he came into that press conference. He said, I am a special one, not the special one. That's one of those sort of famous quotes that gets sort of mis, mis, uh, misspoken, isn't it? But he came into that press conference. He said that he was special. He said that, you know, they had a lot of money and top players and now they have a top manager and stuff like that. And And it's... Yeah, it's pro wrestling heel territory, um, and he was so good at it. Um, and and I know sort of his act may have may have tired a bit over over the course of the last sort of five or six years, but um, it was it was something that was great to see. And and actually, you know, you could like Wenger, for example, was just he just seemed to be completely like he knew how to deal with Ferguson, but Mourinho seemed to wind him up in a in a in a completely different kind of way, and. Um, it's that great Mourinho quote where he says that um, Wenger must have a big telescope and uh, watch people like a voyeur because he's obsessed yeah. with Chelsea. <laughs> it's like, who else would say that? It's just brilliant. Um, Let's just talk a little bit about the uh, about the squad that, that Mourinho inherited because the obviously we, we, we talk about him announcing himself as the special one. And generally speaking, particularly with the influx of foreign players coming into the league, Often it would take a little bit of time for them to settle, and in this case, you know the the signings that Mourinho made um, did not. But we'll come on to that in just a minute. Obviously, Ranieri had been there for I think four years, and during that time, he'd signed Frank Lampard, he'd signed Damian Duff. The season before, he'd signed Claude Makélélé, who would probably become probably the most crucial part of that uh, that side, arguably. Um, so Ranieri had spent a, a fair amount of time building this squad. Ranieri comes in, he brings Ricardo Carvalho. Uh, did Carvalho come with him? Carvalho yeah. Mourinho was Mourinho's guy, wasn't he? He really, yeah. he really wanted him, and, and what a great signing he turned out to be. I mean, what a classy centre half. Probably him and Terry together was just such a it was silk and steel, wasn't it? It was, it was a, a great partnership. There was a joke was, was signed this season, and um, we obviously he he became sort of a very stable influence at uh, Chelsea for for around a decade. Uh, I mean, Czech, Czech's an interesting one in the sense that he actually, I mean, like a lot of these players were sort of due to come. You know, they'd been sort of tapped up to come before Mourinho did. So Czech and Robin, for example, were both on their way anyway. I think Robin was born mm. the season before, but he played out. You know his last year um, at his at his club in Holland um, before he came over. Whereas um, yeah, and, and Czech was kind of the guy that they picked up, and then he was brilliant in Euro two thousand and four. And it was like, oh, Chelsea have really really made a good signing here. But Cudicini, poor old Carlo Cudicini, yeah. was, was Chelsea's player of the year. Yeah, the season before. And I think two years before that as well. Poor guy. So he just became the best number two keeper in the country suddenly. 
Drogba was signed this season, I think, and he was on the radar as well. He he had a, a good showing for Marseille in the UEFA Cup. Um, he bought Paolo Ferreira with him as well, didn't he, from yeah. Porto, along with Carvalho. It's basically six big signings, and the difference between this year and the first year of the Abramovich money is that there's a lot more focus in who they bring in and why. We had a joke at the time that uh, Ferreira and Carvalho was effectively buying out the uh, the Porto defence like it was a flat packed furniture, you know. Um, and then it was Kejman and Robin both come in because they'd played together, sort of, uh, I think both at PSV. And Czech and Drogba were then supposed to be these, this next generation, the great players that were going to go on and, and lead uh, for the next decade. So you had these two pairs of players bought in with a specific role in mind and then obvious future world beaters who would go on to, to dominate. And, you know, like the, the thing was, is that you, you had these players that were already there. I mean, you had that sort of homegrown core of, of Lampard, um, Terry bridge. Uh, obviously they picked up bridge from Southampton, but you know, what, what was really interesting was that um, the, the story about Mourinho, standing naked in the shower next to Frank Lampard and telling him he could be the best player in the world <laughs> and like these sorts of little stories which kind of come out about how he sort of just seemed to get the temperature of the place right away and he he put his money on Lampard and Terry to be this sort of heart of the club um, which was a really really smart decision and then you know he he played that four three three, um, you know, and obviously Duff and you know Duff and Joe Cole were already there. Robin, you know, turned out to be an unbelievable player. I don't think many people knew very much about him before he came, and you know, he just he was him and Duff together, sort of uh, playing off Good Johnson. They were both just electric, and they there was they thumped teams. I mean, if you look at their results. You know, 4-1 v Palace, 4-0 v Blackburn, 4-1 v West Brom, 4-1 v Fulham, 4-0 v Charlton, 4-0 v Norwich. It's like they they steamroll the teams. They only conceded 15 goals, but they often thrashed teams as well. It's worth noting, though, they didn't start doing that until they lost their one game for the season. Like, they they lost to Man City, um, where, ironically, Nicholas Anelka uh, finished them off. And I think up until that point, they hadn't won by more than cl- one clear goal. And then they just, the, the they switch just their legs, yeah. And yeah, they started slowly. And it wasn't just one player who was. You look at the the scores of those from those games, and it's and it's Drogba, Lampard, Robin, um, Cole, Duff. They're all getting in on the act and scoring. Um, which Terry, again, he scores quite Terry, a few goals this season. Yeah. As he always um, did, actually. Didn't he get, like, 60 goals odd in his, in yeah, his career? Like, it's crazy. Real goal scoring. I, I think there was one season, I think he scored sort of 12, 15 goals or something like that. Um, but he's, you know, there were goals coming from all over the park. And we think, you know, we, we spoke about Manchester United in that first week and they did something similar. You, you couldn't just pinpoint where one goal was going to come. And Drogba, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he struggled in that. That first season, but he certainly had more effective seasons. Yeah, than, uh, but you know, I think it's Good Johnson. Good Johnson was such a, an important player for that team because he he his movement was so so clever. So yeah, I mean Drogba was like he was settling in, and then the next season he was an absolute beast. You know, he well, kind Drogba, of he, 
I was just going to say he started out the season as first choice, but he didn't he get an injury that kept him out for about six weeks. Good Johnson came back in then and never really looked like losing the shirt after that. He scores some lovely goals in that season, Good Johnson. The one against United, where he just kind of juggles it, was was just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you got to say Good Johnson, probably a proper underrated Premier League striker. You know, he is, yeah. Re- really good player, good all-round game, and you know, scored lots of goals this season and lots of important ones at that. Didn't he play a few games for Iceland with his dad? <laughs> I hadn't like, it, like his like his dad was his dad was still playing for Iceland when Johnson made his debut, something like that. That's brilliant. He's one of those players that I think <laughs> because he came from a, I suppose a he was brought to English football by a fairly sort of unfashionable club in Bolton. Um, and when he left, he went to Barcelona. Yeah, like, he's just one of those players. Great there. there. Yeah, he's love, lovely, lovely footballer. Just I, I, one of those ones that just had a real football brain. You know, I kind of, you know, I kind of think of him as being just that that real clever, make space for other people. Almost to think a bit, is a, a bit Peter Beardsley about him. You know, just had that sort of knack of just. Um, making space for other people, even when he wasn't scoring himself. I think just to cycle back, like you said about all the goals coming from all around the, the pitch. I mean, that had to be the case because I mean, my abiding memory of the season is largely uh, there are those moments with with Good Johnson and that Man United goal, as we say, and, and some very special goals that way. But it's one of my abiding memories is, is Robin, and he yeah. was injured a lot that year, so. Yeah. All these um, big names that came in had time on the bench where they, they couldn't fit in and somebody else had to pick up the slack. And it was the kind of team where someone would. Uh, when when Robin went missing, it was Damien Duff, for example, that uh, suddenly went on a tear and he ended up scoring 10 goals. Lampard was the top scorer. Uh, Joe Cole hit the same sort of number of goals as Damien Duff. But people had to come through out of necessity. Uh, the other thing I just want to throw in as well is they, there's a crucial weekend because they start scoring goals, but that slow 1-0 period kind of ends the same weekend that Arsenal lose their unbeaten streak. Uh, the next day they got Blackburn and stuffed them 4-1, and then for about six or seven weeks they usually win by three or four goals. And uh, I think that's really the weekend the league was won. Yeah, Arsenal never really recovered from that, did they? It was sort of... It was almost like United and Arsenal took so much out of each other just in that one game that you kind of felt like it was Chelsea's title after that. And they're just, unlike most kind of teams that are going for it for the first time, they they never looked like um, letting up. And, th- and like you said, that, that their mentality was just unbelievable. And, you know, you always had Frank Lampard in there and you always had McAlealy in there. But then next to those two, it was kind of like a revolving cast of, you know, sort of fairly average midfield players. You know, uh, Thiago and um, Smertin and, you know, these sorts of guys. Jeremy was Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy was still there. And, they, you know, not great players, but but they just fit. You know, they didn't have to be because you had McElhaney mopping things up. You had Lampard, you know, going up and down and. They just had to be, I guess it's a bit like the old Kovacic plays for Chelsea today. They just had to be steady and, and, and keep the ball moving. Um, so it was it was, a, it was one of those sides where it, the core of it was very, very settled, like that United one we talked about and like the Leeds one we talked about, actually. 
but you know there was sort of a bit of a bit of movement because you know Robin was often injured um Joe Cole coming in is a really interesting one because he obviously got bought in that initial spree of, of Abramovich money didn't really make an impact kind of you know he was at West Ham he was a mercurial number 10 but definitely one of those players that was very easy on the eye but didn't necessarily always affect the game and you know Mourinho kind of turns him into this ruthlessly effective left winger which is uh you know a lot of people say that he ruined Joe Cole but I mean actually you'd, you'd kind of have to say he, he made him because you know the age of being able to just float around the pitch and and, and do nice touches was kind of over I mean, Joe Cole's a really interesting one. If you take it back, I mean, I can't, I don't know if you all, you know, remember the hype surrounding Joe Cole as a kid before yeah. he burst through. You know, he was, you know, he was that player more so than anyone else. You know, I'd say more so than, than a Beckham, more so than a Rooney, pro- probably on the level of gigs as he was coming through of just how much hype there was behind this kid. And, you know, he was obviously talented, but yeah, I, I, I think Mourinho did get the best out of him because for a long time, he couldn't live up to that hype. And it, it was this period with Chelsea where was probably the only part of his career where he did. You know, you've, you, you guys mentioned football manager a lot. Um, and, you know, this reminds me of the sort of the thing you do where you like, you know, um, make a point by keeping them on the bench or like loan them out to some to some like you know crap team to um to teach them a lesson because Mourinho refused to play Cole basically until he had learned defensive responsibility and then suddenly Mourinho was like right you've learned that I trust you now and he played him for a run of games and you know and he was and then Cole was just really really good for a few years good for England as well and it only really went off the rails when he went to Liverpool, which was a, one of those really bizarre, you know, bizarre moves. What about the, obviously, that central defence, um, you know, they, they conceded 15 goals over the course of the whole season. And, um, I mean, they, they played quite narrow. They would they, they tended to invite people to, to sort of spray crosses into the box simply because they knew that, you know, there was a 99% chance they'd deal with it pretty pretty comfortably. Um, Mourinho, I mean, you know, the, the, million, the, the billions, I should say, of Abramovich changed the landscape for for clubs in, in, in England. But I think Mourinho changed the landscape tactically. Um, it became very difficult for teams who played 4-4-2 to live with Chelsea simply because they always seem to have an extra man in midfield. It was very difficult for for those teams to control the midfield. And in Drogba, although they only had the one man up top, he was so strong and he would he would move into positions that would drag one or other of the central defenders away with him and it would always create space for somebody, whether it be Lampard bursting through, whether it be Robin or Duff um, on the outside. There just seemed, there always seemed to be space opening up. And as you say... Good Johnson would be, would be the perfect player to exploit that space. I think you know you look at you look at their um, at their stats this season. It is it is it, it, they were dominant. You know, ninety five points, twenty nine wins, twenty five clean sheets, fifteen fifteen only fifteen goals conceded. You know, Czech was imperious. Um, you know, they it's not like they played defensively. They were just very good defensively. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot I know like. 
when when Mourinho goes to Inter, right, that's when, you know, sort of real shithouse kind of, you know, I'm going to park the bus just because I, I want to break Barcelona's hearts. Mourinho kind of came around like they were very well organised. Yes, but they were very, very effective going forward as well. Um it's funny enough, like actually this season is when the term park the bus gets coined and it's Mourinho that coins it because uh, they play Spurs. Um, and I'll always remember this, like Jacques Santini, who was a very ill-advised choice as Spurs manager for a little while before we uh, sacked him in favour of Martin Yol, who was his assistant at the time. And um, <laughs> he kind of basically just just defended with 10 men the whole game. And, uh, and that's when Mourinho said, you know, they brought the bus and they parked it in front of the goal and it it just stuck it's amazing how these things come full circle isn't it well exactly it's kind of Mourinho complaining about somebody yeah defending for their lives but um you know go and go and uh <laughs> go and tell that to Pep Guardiola do you think the narrowness that you spoke about in defense there is out of necessity as well with this team because I think in they they bought Carvalho and Ferreira for big money, and even with all the money they had, there was a, the idea that they were going to play at least for this first season. Um, they've got John Terry; he's obviously not going to get dropped. You've also got William Gallas, who was who was brilliant, and he flits around playing. I think he plays in every position in Chelsea's defence over this year and the next season, and eventually it's what causes him to really be the first big fallout. Uh, with Mourinho at Chelsea and it's arguably when it all starts to go wrong so do you think that having a centre-back on the left or the right back position was part of why they were narrow in the first place it certainly plays a part in it doesn't it you know he's naturally going to be moving to the centre and I I think with Gallas as well like you were saying he was a fantastic player I mean that Gallas and Terry partnership was a really really good one before that and you know i i was always of the impression that you know gallas was what made terry look good because he 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 was quick he was always there to mop up if if terry wasn't doing what needed and you know terry is obviously a big personality a big leader in that defense and they just worked really really well together as a pairing so obviously carvalho coming in you you're bringing in a a world-class centre-half where you've already got to. And, you know, Gallas being smaller, a bit more agile, a bit quicker, is the obvious choice to to push out to full-back. You know, I, I, I was very happy when we signed him. That obviously didn't work out well in the end, you know. I didn't like the idea that it was because Ashley Cole was going the other way either. But, you know, w- what he's capable of, it's fantastic centre-half. And, you know, filling in, he's... Obviously, you're going to have less of a, you know, desire to get forward, to, to run up and down that byline. You know, he's a defender, you know, first and foremost, and he's going to want to tuck in and basically, you know, help out when something's going wrong with Terry or Carvalho. So, yeah, it, it kind of does make sense, whichever, certainly on whichever side he's playing on that, that's more likely to happen. But it's Mourinho's calling card in, I mean, actually, you see it, you see it more and more, um, uh, as his managerial career progresses, he he doesn't, but he doesn't like having, um, he doesn't like having short fullbacks. Um, so you know, you notice when he, um, you know, when he kind of comes back to Chelsea, um, he inherits 
um, Ivanovic um, when he, uh, you know, when he sort of goes out and wants a new fullback for Tottenham, he goes against Matt Doherty, who's six foot tall. Um, so he he likes to have tall fullbacks because he hates the idea of, you know, having like a, you know, a, a five foot six, seven Danny Rose getting beaten on a, you know, on a sort of back post corner uh or back post header like he so he does he does like those those tall players those big players and it became kind of the Mourinho way to kind of have you know a big big team you know Drogba massive you know Terry massive um when he goes and gets you know a few seasons later when he comes back to Chelsea and he gets Matic you know he, he likes having this kind of big physical team and and I think I saw an interview with him where he actually said, you know, when I first came to the Premier League, you know, Arsenal has, you know, they had Vieira and they had Campbell and they had this, you know, again, this this big, big, strong team. And and um, you had to compete with that. Like, if you were going to take the title off the Invincibles, you kind of needed to fight fire with fire and, and have a very physical side. It's worth pointing out that Carvalho only plays um, 25 league games, so... You'd assume that uh, it was actually Gallas who partnered Terry for a fair a fair bit of that. Uh, in fact, looking at the squad, I mean, there's only a couple of players who are more or less ever present. I mean, Terry plays 36, Lampard 38, um, uh, Makalele and Gajonson both uh, play nearly every game. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you've got players like Glenn Johnson appear. Um, that midfield berth never really gets sort of nailed down. Um, so there's plenty of sort of rotation throughout the season. Lampard's the only league ever present, isn't he? And then, as you say, it's much more of a squad game by this point than certainly compared with Leeds, who we looked at the other day, um, yeah. where they, they use like 19 players across the course of the season. I think they let more about 19 players go over the course of the season, Chelsea. <laughs> So. I think, you know, partially it's that it's that midfield, um, you know, where they're, they're, the third player next to Lampard and Makaleli, like they never really settled on on one person to fill that role. Um, you know, I think uh, at left back, like Bridge plays 25 games, but yeah, uh, I think he might, yeah, be in, might be injured for some of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I forgot Robert Hooth was there, actually. <laughs> yeah. Would, of course, go on to... Uh, Played quite a bit, actually. Would, would have gone on to, uh, to to win the title at Leicester as well, funnily enough. He was um, very young at that point, wasn't he? He was a kid coming through, essentially, I think. Basically, yeah. Um, yeah, Alexi Smerton played 25 games, which is, which is a bit crazy. But that, one thing people forget about this season, actually, is that Chelsea competed on all fronts as well. Uh, they went out of the Champions League semi-final to the... The Luis Garcia ghost goal, which um, Mourinho is still complaining about to this day, uh, because, you know, that is funnily enough, the thing that gets Liverpool to the the Champions League final that they win in Rafa Benitez's first year. And it's interesting that the rivalry in English football shifts from United and Arsenal to Chelsea and Liverpool for a couple of years because Mourinho and Benitez just could not stand each other. Um, particularly after that, and it it became a a really fierce rivalry, especially when they then go try they try and tap Gerard up 
um, in the aftermath of his, well, in the lead up to and in the aftermath to his heroics in Istanbul. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a real sort of needly rivalry for a little bit, that Chelsea-Liverpool one. That tapping up nearly works as well. He nearly goes. If yeah. Lead. That yeah, would have been one, a very different Premier League, wouldn't it? If you think exactly. About it. If they if they lose three 0 in that final, right? You know they, they're three 0 down at half time. If they if they if they actually lose that game as they probably should have done, um, I think Gerard does get a Chelsea. God, that's a different ten years <laughs> after that, then, isn't it? I mean, then again, think about that. Like, uh, imagine that Gerard Lampard conversation we had with England for bloody however long. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, for Chelsea as well, it would be terrible. Or maybe hilarious, it brilliant. Especially when they signed Torres eventually and then had, had him like flopping to the mix. Goodness me. I mean, it's, 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 it's funny actually, like, because Chelsea don't always get these big signings right, do they? I mean, like, they took Shevchenko from Milan, and who was absolutely the most dominant striker in Europe for a, a period of time. And then he just sort of never settles English football doesn't look the same player. Um, you know, when they, they go and get Torres, you know, uh, sort of the hamstrings gone and he's never the same player. Uh, it's, it's funny because they, they get a lot right, but it is almost whack-a-mole. Like, they get a lot wrong too. Uh, especially with strikers. A lot of strikers, are, you know, you think, you know, they had Mutu go this season, didn't they? After well, That wasn't his... their fault, though. Yeah, well... It's, too much yeah, uh, but, Colombian marching powder for him. Definitely. But at the same time, you know, he, he, he didn't really set the league on fire. And, you know, Kejman as well didn't didn't really work out that well in the long term. You know, and, and it's, it, it's the, you know, dependable Good Johnson, who, you know, was a lot less flashy than a lot of these sign-ins who, who did really well. And, you know, Drogba, you know, probably... Probably Dropper as well didn't have the same fanfare when he came in uh, as a lot of those strikers. I think with Dropper, he just ended up being like part of that spine. And it was, they were all like massive characters and massive leaders. You know, you had that spine of Czech, Terry, Lampard, Drogba, and it was there unbroken for like, when does Lampard go to City? Like, 2014 2015 like mm. it's it's like an incredible run um by those players you know the kind of thing that you that you you saw at united as well or with the the arsenal back four um they were just together for a really long really really long time no matter what manager came in whether it was ancelotti or you know or uh, vs boas or you know whoever it was that came in um that spine was always there and, and that, they they were sort of Chelsea always competed for as long as they had those players Chelsea would always be a threat um even later in their careers and it meant they didn't have to get every transfer right because you already had the spine and you're only tinkering around the edges so the next year when they go out and buy four or five players I think only one of them was really uh, a kind of big hit to improve the team and that was Michael Essien uh, people forget that that's the time when they dropped that huge sum of money on Sean Wright Phillips and he barely plays. Mm. But they did, it didn't matter because, as you say, it was that whack-a-mole thing. You put down, you will improve the side because money was no object and the spine of the team was already set. And a lot of those players went on to be really good players as well. I mean, you know, Scott Parker 
was brilliant for Spurs. And, you know, and, and it, it's just that he was so young when Chelsea took him. It was no, he had no chance of getting in the team. Um, as well. I mean, so, it's a really interesting contrast to Leeds there, you know, that, that extra money you've got where, you know, where it doesn't matter that you spend that money on a flop, you know, whereas Leeds are buying everyone and suddenly that, that money's no longer there, whereas the Abramovich well goes so much deeper. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, right, get rid of him, try this next one. It's the difference between gambling and spending without consequences, really. There's the Leeds and Chelsea yeah. stories. We spoke about the ghost goal a little while ago in, in uh, the Liverpool game. I just want to cycle back to that a bit because they were so dominant this year in the league that I don't have that many specific memories of particular games in the league. I remember Europe much more strongly because I think they probably were either the first or second best team in Europe for this year and the next year, even though they never actually won the Champions League until much later. And I remember not just that uh, two-leg game with with Liverpool. I really strongly remember the Barcelona, the Barca game with the, the Barca game. Oh my yeah. word! No backlift goal. <laughs> yes, it's a remarkable game though, where they uh, beat them four-two in the second leg, having lost with uh, a rare cameo from Maxi Lopez, and <laughs> uh, never heard from again in Barcelona circles. I don't think, but he comes on and changes the game at the new camp, and then that crazy game back at Stamford Bridge, but they end up playing them again the next year in the round of 16. It was bizarre kind of rivalry. So you not only had this Mourinho growing situation with Liverpool, but you had this huge rivalry with Barcelona with the, probably the other big contender for the best team in Europe at the time. They wouldn't give him the job, would they? Like, and, and so he, cause he'd come out of that Bobby Robson boot room, if you like, he, uh, yeah, he's 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 never forgiven Barca for it, has he? I mean, the whole sort of feud with Pep thing comes out of that as well. But he, I mean, I remember it as well. Like, obviously, Frank Lampard, Frank Lampard, Frank Wright card was um, was the manager of Barca at the time, and um, obviously a you know, a brilliant player playing career. And Mourinho gets in a real spat with him as well, you know. And that's is that sort of whole that whole thing where. Because Mourinho, you know, in his own words in the All or Nothing documentary, was a shit player at a shit level. <laughs> he he always seems to take on these, you know, these managers who did have stellar playing careers. He almost sort of seems to have extra motivation, you know, against them, like Pep being another one. Um, it is it is very very interesting that he always finds ways to motivate himself. Isn't this the season with the laundry basket as well? Do you remember that story where he hides in a laundry basket because he had a touchline ban? <laughs> <laughs> so he um, he basically is not allowed in the changing rooms and he got the Chelsea staff to, to wheel in the laundry basket with the kits in and he was inside and he gave a team talk and they wheeled him back out again. Or was it Munich? Is that right? I can't remember where. I can't remember what game it was. It, I think it's either this season or the next season. I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's just that's that's just brilliant. Like that Jose, sort of Jose Mourinho and touchline ban is not going to help us narrow it down to a particular season either. They were reasonably <laughs> common. 
No, it's true. It's true. But yeah, this that was that was a particularly uh, funny and, uh, and and famous story. And that's the thing is, you know, he was much more playful in those days. In some ways, you know, as he's got older, he's got a little bit more, a bit more taciturn and a bit more kind of waspish. But in those days, you know, he he was actually very very funny as well as being you know as well as being like you know um uh aggressive and brash like he could also be extremely funny and playful and, and that was a, a good example of that i mean he charmed the the league but and he came in as a villain but he had charmed all of uh, english football effectively by the end of that first season except arsene wenger really um <laughs> you know he'd won everyone says yeah and benitez but he'd won everyone over yeah, but him and Ferguson are famously great mates, aren't they? I mean, they they bonded over Portuguese red wine or some such. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that you know United are going through their mini slump at this point, but um, it's kind of like when United get back on the winning trail is 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 the season that Abramovich decides to sack him, um, which I was remember thinking was a really curious decision at the time because they weren't even doing that badly. How much of it is United getting back on the winning track and how much of it is, in, with 14 years of hindsight now, what has become the perennial Mourinho blow-up? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I don't think... I don't know if the sort of 06, 07 thing was the same as what's gone on since. Like, wasn't it more that he just fell out with Abramovich as opposed to anything like he didn't lose the dressing room or anything like that like he has done sort of latterly um I mean obviously the man's got a self-destruct button but it, it seemed to me at the time it was kind of tensions with Abramovich more than anything else yeah that's certainly how it seemed at the time I just wonder if looking back on it with what we know subsequently if maybe there's more to it than we saw at the time because it's around the point where people start leaving uh that that side is breaking up anyway that i mean that summer robin goes galas goes uh there's a few other players that, that that are all on the way out the door and i just wonder if maybe there was a little bit more to, if this is the prototype for the more spectacular things that have happened later or maybe that's just rewriting history yeah i think it's a bit of a it's become a narrative hasn't it the, the sort of the the jose third season syndrome um I tend to think it's a little bit unfair um, because kind of, you know, Inter, he kind of, you know, he left on his own terms, like, um, and because the Chel- the second Chelsea one, the, you know, where they win the league and then the next season, it just, just from the very first game, it's just the, the, the train is completely off the rails. And then of course, going to United and not managing to, to, to really turn them around has been very damaging for his CV because that was kind of always the job that he'd he'd held out hope for and and he got it and then it was such a mess when he got there I guess that that um how how realistic was it that he was going to sort of you know take on this historically great Man City side that Pep built but yeah it's it's certainly an interesting one I mean obviously as a Spurs fan I'm you know currently uh, watching with interest as, as it kind of goes along and um, how much you, you, you take the all or nothing side of Mourinho seriously, how much he was playing to the camera, you don't really know. But um, certainly uh, certainly been a, 
going to be an interesting, you know, season or so to see see where he manages to take us, really. So what what do we feel is the the sort of the legacy of this this Chelsea team um, as we look back on it? I mean, uh, for, for me, it th- there is a definite shift in uh, tactical approach. I mean, you, you, the the United side that eventually takes back their 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 crown as champions a few seasons later, there's definitely a tactical shift that Ferguson has uh, has implemented to sort of respond to. Um, I suppose to the influence of Mourinho and to some extent Benitez as well. Um, where do we see uh, where do we see Chelsea in, in in terms of their their contemporaries at that time and the other sort of champion sides that have that we've seen over the years? Well, as well, I said, say, I was just going to say, as I said a minute ago, I think at the time they were, if not the best team in Europe, best club team in Europe, the second best club team in Europe for two years and. That's the only time in Chelsea's history you can say that. And I don't say that to knock them. That's just a statement of fact. Uh, it redraws how we think about Chelsea this couple of, a couple of years. It changes the league as well. Tactically, it, we, uh, as you pointed out, but we also enter a whole new phase, a whole new set of narratives. And they're as, as important to that as anybody, if not the most important team in, in doing that, in ending that Arsenal-United five six year era and moving us into the the middle 2000s to, to 2010 that kind of era so they change english football they've they've left their mark on on chelsea as a club they have got one of the best records of any team we'll ever see in in, in the premier league I, I you you run out of superlatives they're one of those few sides like the 94 man united side like city a couple of years ago where you just you just can't quite come up with the words. Then that, that's how good they were for me. Yeah, they were very, they were, they, they were very, very dominant. I mean, until until that sort of hundred point City team, and then you know the Liverpool team that's just won it. I think probably they're the most dominant. And and I know you know sort of we we're going to talk about some of the the Arsenal sides um, in, in in future editions and. You know, it's kind of what's interesting about them is that, you know, there's not they're not particularly like dominant the way this Chelsea team is dominant. You know, the Invincibles kind of was it they drew 11 or 12 games. Um, You know, this 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 Chelsea team just uh, some of the records still stand. You know, their clean sheet record still stands. Um, The their their sort of record for fewest goals conceded still stands. You know, their win record was was only broken by the Conte uh, Chelsea winning team um, until, again, City broke that again after that. And then their point record was only broken by City and then now by Liverpool as well. So they, they were one of the great teams. And I think if you if you look back through just Premier League history, you know, you'd kind of say United 93, 94. Um, sort of this this sort of Chelsea team um the Pep City team and the uh and the Klopp Liverpool team you know those those are the sides really um because a lot of the others like if you think about United 95 96 they kind of they were behind a long way and they hauled Newcastle in you know if you look at Arsenal in 98 they were behind a long way and they 
and they hauled United in. So those were probably more exciting title races. But obviously the teams were kind of like interestingly flaws to allow that to happen. Whereas these sides were just steamrollers. I mean, conceding 15 goals. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, conceding 15 goals is absolutely insane. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. I mean, mo- most teams will, will ship that just to Liverpool and City this year. You know, it's <laughs> we'll true. in a month. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, you know, uh, I think at least three teams let that in at the weekend. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that that's insane for me. And what, what, what you see is you've got that really solid base. And... Any great team needs a solid base. So, you know, having a Terry in there, having, you know, Galas shifting around and keeping it solid, bringing in Carvalho, you know, Czech coming in in the goal and having Makalele sitting in front of them with Mourinho's tactics to go around that, that is, you know, proves to be rock solid, absolutely rock solid. And, you know, that's... Uh, and as Mav said, you know, that that's not calling them a defensive team, but just a really, really strong defence. They're two different things, you know, and you build on that. And that's what gives you the opportunity for a Lampard, for a Duff, for a a Robin to do their thing from midfield and a a Joe Cole. And, And they did just that. One final thing. I mean, this, um, this team obviously doesn't stay. Uh, we, we parts of this team stay together for a long time, but this particular team, and I suppose their success isn't as enduring as the United team that we talked about in uh, from nineteen ninety four, for example. Um, where do we think that sort of that goes wrong? I mean, is is it sort of losing certain? Per- I know Robin Lou, um, moves on probably about two years after this, doesn't he? Goes to Real, doesn't he? Like I think, I think you know the the. Well, I mean, they win it back to back, don't they? So they win this one, they win the next one. Obviously, yeah. then Mourinho they finish second, but Mourinho gets sacked. Um, but then they win it again with Ancelotti in like oh nine ten. Is that that the season they win it with Ancelotti? Uh, um, and then they and then they sort of they win it with um, Mourinho the second time around, and then with Conte. So you know they they've kind of won it semi-regularly but I think the thing is is that United right up until Ferguson's retirement were always in the mix um you you know then you got the rise of City so it's just it's just circuit and then and then obviously Liverpool's resurgence so so you've got like you've always got to look at what is is around and the difference between you know when you had United in the 90s was that basically nobody stepped up or nobody was able to step up until Wenger um and after that, it's United Arsenal that dominate. Now you've got a third team in the mix. By the time you get to City, you've got four teams in the mix. I mean, you might argue, you know, over the, over sort of the Pochettino era, like Spurs are in the mix. So it's it's just a case of, of, of I think, there being better competition more than anything else. Because looking back on it, really, between, you know, 93 and, and, and 98, it's like, come on, rest of a league, at least at least have a go at United. So do you think there's obviously that teams are sort of responding more quickly to these changes? As we say, the, yeah. the tactical landscape changes very quickly and Mourinho's there, Benitez is there, Ferguson adapts, Wenger arguably doesn't adapt. Well, he does, uh, but he, goes, he adapts the wrong way. 
yeah so he so when everyone else is, is you know is copied his invincibles template of you know big strong fast players everywhere on the pitch he then watches barcelona and goes no i want to do that um which for the premier league at that point was maybe still not the right time for it i mean i know guardiola has gone and done it now but even so he's got people like de bruyne who you know put a foot in um and and fernandinho as well so it's kind of like yeah wenger kind of decided that he wanted to play a different way and and obviously then they did they couldn't spend the money because of the emirates and stuff either could they so i think you know that's that's the two things that kind of do arsenal it's worth remembering as well that as much as ferguson adapts and, and he does he catches up to to what's these new developments tactically as, as he was always going to but over the first 18 months of, of chelsea getting the abramovich money he, he buys this skinny Portuguese kid and this fat English kid. Um, by 2006, they've become Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney. And that makes a difference as well, because you've got these pl- great players leaving Chelsea in Gallas and Robin and, and two or three others uh, in 2006, 2007. And you've got young kids who've been bought for the future coming in to their peak years at Man United. And all of a sudden there's this new front line and, I think that's where you, maybe the, the question about Mourinho is is to be asked is what happens when the that first wave is over. You know what can he do to uh, to come back? And you know they were still really good that season. They came second, but the United team that ran for three and won it did they win it three years on the bounce? Uh, you know they were something else again. So I mean maybe they didn't dominate in quite the same way that Chelsea did in two thousand four and five. But that was new then, and this was again a different evolution. So yeah, I guess that, it's that it's, it's that way that United and Ferguson adapts that shows that he's he's still king when it comes to the great managers of the Premier League. And I think you know, I think Gary Neville has said a lot. It's really hard to win back-to-back titles. It's really really hard to do it, um, and it takes a lot out of you. You know, and you saw it with City last season. You know, they won those two titles back to back. And this, but you know, they just they couldn't keep up with Liverpool um, this time around because it's like uh, you know, obviously there were some, some, you know, Liverpool were fantastic, but also you could see that City were mentally exhausted very early last season. You could see that. I think um, it's quite telling that in the Premier League years, nobody's more, won more than three on the bounce. United, I think, are the only team to do it. Um, yeah. It's very, um, very difficult to do. And you, you contrast that to, you know, Germany and Spain and uh, Scotland, I suppose, um, where the, the same teams manages to keep doing it. It's, it's kind of, I suppose, a tribute to the, 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 the way the Premier League has, has evolved over the, the last sort of uh, 25 years or so that, you know, different teams will come and win it. Different managers will come in and shake things up and do things a bit differently and um, create new challenges for sort of the incumbent ch- champions. And it's it's kind of a fascinating thing. And you know, we, we were saying um, off air before we started how football perhaps isn't quite the same as it was uh, twenty years ago. But you can't deny there's 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 always that kind of that intrigue around when you get get sort of new management talent in the, in the league, like when Guardiola finally came to England, Klopp in England, it's changed things and it's it's shown it's shown other teams something different and something they have to aspire to and adapt to. Um, 
so I, I think that's that, that, that's an interesting thing that I think it isn't spoken about much when you compare it with other with other countries. Yeah, it's it's ingrained in English football. I mean, this one thing the Premier League hasn't been able to change. You know, every but you get all these imports in managers and players and so on, and, and it's a much more box office thing and a glamorous thing than it ever was in the days of the seventies or, or whatever. But I don't think anyone's ever won four on the bounce in English football going back a hundred and twenty five years or whatever it's been in in the history of the football league. Three is about as good as anyone's ever gotten, I think. It, I feel worth, we're in shaky it, on the facts realm here, but, um, but it's um, it's worth saying that you know that's actually a pretty new development in uh, in German football, in Italian football. Like it's it, you know the Juve and Bayern dominance um, is something that's kind of come around in sort of the last ten years, where basically because of the fifty plus one rule in particular in the Bundesliga, you know um, because Bayern are commercially much more successful, and you know. The, the other teams the Bundesliga can't get you know sort of a rich backer to kind of go and compete with Bayern that's 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 why that's why Bayern are sort of so dominant now is because if there's good players playing in the Bundesliga they can just hoover them all up um, well, I suppose the one thing to be said for for the Premier League is that one I mean obviously you say in Bayern Bayern are sort of the dominant financial muscle there and it, and it seems to be in in Germany that it's not a case of a team can come and challenge Bayern. It's more a case of Bayern will eventually take your best players. Yeah, um, I mean and, Dortmund and Klopp. You know that's that was such an amazing yeah. achievement for for them to win that bat, those bats about titles because because of what Bayern you know were um, and are. You know, so it's it's like you know Dortmund you know don't quite have the money that that Bayern do, but what they do do is they can bring in. You know, and they have an amazing talent spotting system, and then they'll always just they'll make money and make money and make money because they can sort of sell it on. Um, whereas I think with English football, because the fact that the, the Premier League money in '92 does sort of you know change everything, because then you're one rich benefactor away from you know fr- from competing, um, and you know that it's going to be interesting to see. You know, obviously, it looked like it might be Newcastle in the summer, but who's going to be the next team that gets, you know, a sort of a mega owner um, that's that's going to kind of make another challenger, you know, and it's it's bound to happen. It's bound to happen sooner or later. And I guess because there's more than one mega owner in in, in England, obviously, you, 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 Abramovich is there. You've got the, um, the Abu Dhabi money in, in Man City. You know, the the Glazers will put money into City to, to United. Um, the Fenway Group are, will put money into Liverpool, though apparently they can't quite compete on the, the same sort of uh, level. Um, so they have they've had to be a little bit smarter with their signings rather than just buying up everybody going. Um, and I suppose it the fact that some teams do have to be a little bit more compact in their finances, although they still have a huge amount of muscle especially compared with other European teams, so they can attract players from other European teams. It makes for a very kind of intriguing setup behind sort of the, the football and the, the tactics and everything like that. It, the, the, the financial side of it makes it a very engaging league to follow when you know, compared to, for example, Spain, where they the, the, the individual clubs control their own um, uh, TV rights and things like that. So Barcelona will get a huge amount more money than, say, a, a Valencia or Sevilla or someone like that. 
but Barca and Real are both in massive amounts of debt. Like There's that too. Ca- <laughs> catastrophic amounts of debt, actually. Like they're both, um, both of their finances are in a real state at the moment. Um, it's going to be interesting. Spanish football might be quite interesting in the next couple of years. Um, to to put it mildly, I wonder if Simeone and Atletico can cook up another title at some point because that again, that's a, that's another great story. I don't know if that's a season we should do sometime. That Atleti, uh, that Atleti title winning side. Well, I think that's a that's a nice place to leave it. Um, Just before we do, oh, there's uh, I'm going to throw in my Darren Ferguson moment of the uh, the this one. Because uh, Petr Pe- Cech obviously starts pretty much every game going. Uh, they they stop playing him once they've wrapped up the league. Um, and Carlo Cudicini gets a rare appearance uh, outside the cup. But he gets taken off, uh, injured, with about 10 minutes to go in the first game after they've won the league. And they haven't put Cech on the bench. So they send on Lenny Pidgeley. And this just happens to be the first home game after they've wrapped up the league. So Lenny Pidgeley is on the field when Chelsea get presented with the Premier League trophy for the first time. That's just one of those. Does he get a medal? I don't know if he gets a medal for playing 10 minutes, but he's on the field as they get as they get the uh, the trophy, which is just one of those weird little quirks of history. We won't play Jack. We won't put him on the bench and Cudicini gets taken off injured. That's probably the only eight minutes in, in league play of his entire Chelsea career, to be honest with you. But there we go. I feel like you've ruined it. Um, I'm, I'm going to ruin every one. I, I just warn you in advance. <laughs> um, OK, so we started with Claudio Ranieri. So we're, we're going to finish with Claudio Ranieri. Next week, we are discussing that magical season that Leicester City had um, 2015 to 16. Uh, still reasonably fresh in the memory, but um, it's going to be an interesting one to discuss, especially given everything we've discussed regarding uh, team ownership and um, this, this sort of the monopoly on on the Premier League that have been established by United, City, Chelsea, um, and Arsenal to this point. Um, and uh, I, th- I think, for memory, this is a particularly painful one for Neil. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like I'm the one person that didn't want Leicester. Well, me and every other Spurs fan, the, the one, the one, pe- you know, one bunch of people that didn't want Leicester to win the league that year. It's kind of interesting for a Spurs fan for us to be cast as villains because usually we're kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, glorious losers. Um, but in this instance, we were, uh, you know, glorious losers who no one else thought was glorious. So, and th- somehow th- managed to come third. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's third, I mean, third in a two-horse race. That's quite yeah. something. I mean, it is the most Spursy thing of all time. Um, the most, yeah, the most Spursy of all seasons, potentially this one. <laughs> but having well, said that, like when we we'll talk, we'll talk about it next week. But uh, that was such a young team, and I, and I think they just didn't have the experience at the end of it all. But you know, that's a, a chat for another day. Well, that's it's not about Spurs. It'll be about Leicester. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, it's not about uh, my side either, because that season absolutely drove me to drink watching Villa getting <laughs> hammered every week. <laughs> that might be an interesting one to cover later. If we, if we oh, run out it. of uh, champions to talk about, we'll talk about uh, horror shows in the relegation zone. 
Yeah. Um, but um, I might be missing that week. Well, I'll, I'll probably have to take a few weeks off as well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> anyway, until then, we've been four at the back. We'll see you next week. Thanks very much. <laughs>